Goddag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Hvis der er en, der i de sidste år virkelig har taget røven på mig, så er det Joe Biden. Da Joe Biden stillede op som præsidentkandidat til at efterfølge Donald Trump, der tænkte jeg, at det var dog frygteligt, at det gamle regimes sidste overlevende skulle køres ind og vende tilbage til den gamle normal fra før Trump. Her havde man fuldstændig åben politisk mulighedsrum, og så valgte man Joe Biden. Og der må jeg bare sige, at jeg tog kolossalt fejl, fordi Joe Biden har vist sig at være en fantastisk transformativ amerikansk præsident. Pludselig er det sådan, at de unge, Bill Clinton og Barack Obama, fremstår som enormt kedelige. Så nu er det tid til at gøre status efter de første 100 dage med Joe Biden som amerikansk præsident. En mand, der har stillet sig i spidsen for global grøn omstilling. En mand, der har taget opgøret med nyliberalismen, afsluttet terroræraen, lovet at trække USA hjem fra Afghanistan og gennemført ting så vidtgående, så jeg ikke havde troet, at Bernie Sanders kunne få dem gennemført. Og til at gøre status over de første 100 dage med Joe Biden, der har jeg længe tænkt på, at jeg utrolig godt kunne tænke mig at tale med Gary Gerstle, som er professor of American history at the University of Cambridge. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially welcome to you, Gary Gerstle. You're with us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you so very much for taking your time. A pleasure to be with you here today. Gary Gerstel skrev nemlig en bog, der for mig var absolut formativ, som hed The Rise and Fall of the New Deal Order, som handlede om, hvordan hele Reagan-orden blev til, som var et stykke meget vigtig amerikansk politisk historieskrivning. Jeg har været meget spændt på at høre, hvordan Gary Gerstel han ville udlægge de første 100 dage med Joe Biden, om han også ville se det som et stort historisk skridt frem, som et stort historisk brud, eller bare som endnu en parentes, som vi i nutiden sidder og dramatiserer helt vildt. Jeg håber, I får lige så meget ud af min samtale med Gary Gerstle, som jeg fik ud af at stille ham alle de spørgsmål om det, jeg selv var i tvivl om. Jeg var thinking om, because this Biden presidency, at først We didn't expect a lot from it here in Denmark. We were hoping for big structural change of Elizabeth Warren or a political revolution of of Bernie Sanders. It seemed like Trump had torn everything apart that was political consensus, at least at a rhetorical level, and that we expected the Democrats to play their maximum card as an answer to that. And it seemed that Trump had made the the political space very open. You could do things again, and trade agreements were being renegotiated. The the economic consensus were being renegotiated, and and then we were a little disappointed about electing Joe Biden, who was like a 50-year part of the American political establishment. And now that we're approaching the 100-day mark, it seems that he is a very progressive, very ambitious president, and the scope of his agenda is just to me very very impressive and and i want to ask you first are you surprised and impressed by the first 100 days of joe biden as well yes i am the surprise that you and uh, uh your fellow danish people have experienced with biden is something that uh, america a lot of americans have experienced as well uh, he had been in the senate for 47 years he had been eight years as obama's vice president One did not think of him as one of the great senators in American life. It's hard to attach his name to a particularly important piece of legislation, experienced in the ways of Washington, liked to talk to people, friends on both sides of the aisle. But he was from a small state, pretty much run by the DuPont Corporation, the big petrochemical company. He was thought to be in their back pocket. He was thought to be someone who didn't like to rock the boat. Uh, always a moderate uh, at the center. And he's not, frankly, a very eloquent man, except when he's quoting Irish poetry. <laughs> And his lack of eloquence, I think, uh, led a lot of people to think that he was perhaps a little too old, maybe a little demented. Actually, he has a speech impediment, which shapes his ability to speak and explains a halting kind of delivery that is not well suited to the television uh, photogenic age. 
so he surprised a lot of people. And then he did poorly in the early primaries uh, when the different Democrats were running. And then he had a smashing surprise victory in the super primary of, of early March uh, of 2020 and largely dependent on a, a big African-American vote in the state of South Carolina. And since that moment, he has continued to gain momentum. Trump found him a very difficult opponent to try and pin down. Uh, Biden probably gave him more difficulty uh, trying to lampoon him than almost any other politician that Trump has had to deal with. And I think what's uh, been most surprising, two elements about Biden. Uh, first, his ability to, to grasp the political moment, uh, the tremendous cost of life from the pandemic, the uh, kind of wreckage that the Trump administration did to so much of American society. And Biden, on the one hand, responded to the pandemic with an extraordinary surge of empathy. He's a man who has suffered personally an almost intolerable level of personal tragedy. His first wife killed uh, in a car crash, his daughter killed in a car crash, his older favorite son, Bo, dying of cancer, buried him several years ago. We might ask, what does tragedy on that level do to a person? Sometimes it makes people brittle, closed off. With Biden, it was just the opposite. Uh, it opened him to the world. It gave him an empathy, an ability to feel other people's pain and to be comfortable talking about that pain emotionally. And in a time of the pandemic, when so many people were ill or so many people were, were dying, his ability to talk frankly about loss, about pain, about emotion, after Trump, who could not talk about any emotion at all, had a very, very powerful impact that, impact that crossed partisan lines. The other element of Biden that surprised all of us is his ability to size up the political nature of the moment. You mentioned Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. They represent the rebirth of an American left that has not been part of American politics for quite some time. There was a, a powerful left in the early 20th century in the 19-teens. There was a powerful left in the 1930s and 40s. There was a powerful left in the 1960s and 70s. There has not been a powerful left in American life since the 1970s. And in the decade after the financial crash of 2008, uh, there has been a revival of the left. And Biden began to ask himself, how do I, as a moderate Democrat, how, how do I do politics in an age in which the left has been reborn? And his answer to that is I have to recognize that the left and American politics represents a very big part of the Democratic Party. I have to deal with them. I have to negotiate with them. I have to build a platform that includes them in my way forward for America. And that way he resembles Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, arguably the greatest president of the 20th century, the author of the New Deal and the author of the New Deal order. And one of the reasons we remember Roosevelt and one of the reasons why he had the achievements he did was that he too understood that the path to success for the Democratic Party for progressive reform was to tie the left and the center of the Democratic Party together on common projects, common agendas. It's not an easy thing to do. There's always tension. But when the Democratic Party and when progressive reform has thrived in America, it has always been in situations where there's been a center to the Democratic Party and a left. And Biden has grasped that that was his challenge. And judging by the legislation he has proposed in his first 100 days, which is more like Roosevelt's first 100 days than any other president that came before Biden, he has learned that lesson well. Whether he can be successful, as successful as Roosevelt, that's a different question. He faces all kinds of obstacles, but the, the ambition and the understanding of what he has to do is there. I saw him, I, I was in New Hampshire covering the primaries about a year ago, and I was 
impressed by a lot of the candidates. I thought Pete Buttigieg was an impressive presence. Ideologically, I preferred Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, but I also saw, thought Klobuchar was impressive. And I thought, well, they have all these stars. And then when I went to see the Biden rallies, it's, it, they just lacked the energy. And it was all about, it was all about uh, an alternative to Trump, a referendum on Trump. And I, I tried to, I thought, what is the vision here? What is actually, what, this restore the soul of the nation. What is the soul of, is this the progressive soul? Is that redistribution? What is the soul? And it, at that time, I felt that he was talking about America as a body that was hit by a virus, Trump, and that he just wanted to get the virus out of the body and back to something that was normal. And now you see him proposing things that have been almost dreams of the radical left in Europe, like the global corporate tax. Is something that we never expected to see from an American president at this moment. You see him siding with the workers against Amazon in, in Alabama, which to me was very, I'm, I'm not sure a Danish social democratic leader would have the courage to side with the workers and encourage them to unionize. And, and it seems that he's, he goes a lot further than he had to do and that the moment required him him to do and also the way he says well i can pay for the infrastructure bill in a lot of ways as long as it doesn't cost anything to people earning less than four hundred thousand dollars a year then you know this this meeting the moment of redistribution and staying out of the moral imperative of the radical left seems very very intelligent to me but i also ask myself where do these plans come from where do these you know infrastructure, the way he frames infrastructure as being also about taking care of sick people, taking care of the elderly. It's like it, he makes everything sound moderate and pragmatic, but, but at the core, it seems radical. So what, I, what we keep discussing here, and what I keep asking myself is where do these policies and these ambitions come from? Are those for the people around him or is it in his own head? Well, the moment is very opportune for that kind of thinking. That's what Biden recognizes. I don't think a lot of these ideas came out of his own head. <laughs> I don't think he's had a secret agenda. I think it'd be wrong to think he is the stealth candidate with a secret agenda who for two or three or four decades now has had these brilliant ideas and has just not had the opportunity. Uh, what's happened is that a political order that had been very dominant is collapsing. This is the neoliberal order uh, that celebrates free markets, that argues that governments can't really do anything that's good. Uh, I sometimes define neoliberalism in terms of four freedoms. These are not the Roosevelt four freedoms, <laughs> but it's the free, to, free trade in a, in a global world, the free movement of people, the free movement of information, and the free movement of capital. Those are, in a sense, the four pillars of a neoliberal age. And you privilege the freedom of movement over other imperatives like justice, fairness, equality. You, you privilege the mobility of trade, of information, of people. The promise being that if you open everything up, everyone will prosper and all boats will rise. And I think this is the dream of the globalized world of the neoliberals. And the terrible recession of 2008, 2009 exposed that promise for the fantasy it always was. There, were, there are winners and losers in the global game. And as the reckoning with the global game went on in the now, what, 13 years since, or 14 years since that happened, uh, people began to think differently and people began to develop new ideas and uh, a left that had been utterly inconsequential and marginal <laughs> in American life during the heyday of the neoliberal order uh, began to be heard again. Uh, also, Trump took a wrecking ball unintentionally to the neoliberal <laughs> order. He didn't really care whether uh, balanced budgets were important. He didn't really care about going into debt. He's been in debt his whole life. He's comfortable <laughs> being in debt. He's comfortable putting the country into debt. He doesn't care about having a strong individual self so that you can 
survive the rigors of the market and the perils that it may foist on you. He, in his own way, damaged the neoliberal order, which the Republican Party had done so much to build. And part of what's interesting about the emergence of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump at the same time, 2016, both of them, their, both their candidacies would not have gone anywhere 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier, when the neoliberal order and orthodoxy was very strong. And the fact that they their ideas resonated meant that one order, which always carries with it a certain kind of ideological orthodoxy, was collapsing, allowing voices that had been utterly marginal to move more toward the center. Uh, and many of these ideas were coming from the young. The left was born on uh, through Occupy Wall Street, uh, a makeshift demonstration against Wall Street in Zuccotti Park in September 2011 that turned into a three-month <laughs> occupation and inspired imitations all over the country, and also inspired the slogan, we are the 99%, meaning that there's a 1% that, that has as much as the 99%. And that that kind of maldistribution of wealth is unacceptable in any society that considers itself to be civilized and fair. So uh, Occupy Wall Street, these insurgent movements, put the issue of inequality back on the agenda for the first time really since the New Deal 60 or 70 years before. And once that idea was uh, back on the agenda, all these individuals, often young people, a new generation, they started up new journals. They started thinking about new ways of dealing with the issue of inequality. They know they can't go back to old style socialism. Social democracy feel, feels a little stale to them. Uh, communism of the Leninist sort is no longer an option. So I think when the history of the last five years is written, we're gonna see this as a very fertile generative moment for new ideas about how to address issues of inequality. And of course, all of this occurring in a moment of climate crisis, when everyone is forced to confront the possible end of humanity and civilization as we know it. And that also has had a freeing effect on the imagination. So Biden, when he's running for president and then gets the nomination and then is elected, discovers a world of ideas out there that he knew very little about and that he was very little committed to, but we have to give him credit for understanding what this moment represents and what kind of opening is here. And rather than being the usual 78 year old who says, ah, the young, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> you have to let, leave it to the old people to run the country. Instead of saying that, he said, there's some good ideas here. And with my experience in Washington and my experience in legislation and my experience in governing, I'm gonna figure out how to get some of these things done. And what's been interesting is not that simply that he's embraced the idea, ideas, but that he has some very clever strategies for implementing them so that they encounter less opposition rather than more. It's a point in, in uh, the rise and fall of, of the New Deal order that when a, a new political order is established, it's so strong that it compels those of the opposition party to take over some of the principles. You mentioned that Ronald Reagan was a New Dealer when he was young, and then he was the primary figure of the birth of neoliberalism in the 80s. Uh, Bill Clinton, we had enormous expectations for him because we thought he were in Denmark, that this were the baby boomers striking back, that now we got the revenge from 68 and that the 80s and the neoliberalism was just a short pause from the progressive uh, history. And the way he embraced neoliberalism, Bill Clinton was also showing how strong this order was. And it seems to me that in order for a political new political order to be established, there must be some sort of consensus in the country there must be some sort of common public where you share your ideas and where convictions are built. And there must be some, some sort of common ground between political parties. And I'm asking myself at this moment in American politics, when it's so polarized, 
And when it seems that you're not even able to agree on what is real, that there is no common public sphere where the same issues are debated, whether it's actually possible in that political environment at this situation to establish a new order or whether everything we see from Biden now on climate redistribution, corporate taxes that we find very promising could be taken away in three years by a new Republican presidency. Well, it's a very important question and maybe the most important question. And that is what future do these wonderful ideas of Biden have? Uh, political orders are, are built through ideas and compelling your opponents to, to themselves embrace your ideas as the dominant ones, as Clinton felt compelled as a Democrat, as you <laughs> suggested, to embrace the principles of Reaganomics. In fact, in the book I'm writing right now, I'm arguing that Clinton did more to establish the neoliberal order than Reagan <laughs> himself did. And if you look at all the legislation passed, I think I have a good, very, very good case for that. But in order to, what is it that compels your opponents to give in to your ideas and to adopt them as your own? Your party has to win elections, not just one, not just two, minimum of three. Because if a political party loses three presidential elections in a row, and is out of office and can't control the levers of power for more than a decade, then it begins to feel the pain because a political party has to be built to win and cannot tolerate losing. And it is the losing that in earlier eras has forced the opponents of the New Deal and the opponents of the Reagan conservatives to moderate their ideas and ultimately to imitate them. So Eisenhower was the first Republican president elected in 24 years when he was elected in 1952. <laughs> uh, and Clinton was the first uh, president, the first Democratic president elected in 1992. And I believe it was 16 years. So these were long years in the wilderness. And if Biden is gonna be successful in building a new order, He's going to have to maintain his majorities in 2022. He or another Democrat are going to have to win re-election in 19, uh, not 1924, 2024, <laughs> and perhaps in 2028. And you're right to wonder whether the Democrats can triumph in that way, given the deep polarization. We may reframe the question and say, how does Biden overcome the deep polarization of American society, if anyone can. And I think he actually has the right idea. He is not becoming an ideological militant. He is not shoving the Green New Deal in the Republican <laughs> face. He is not shoving a black reparations bill to account for the sins of slavery in the face of white Americans. He's not accusing whites of indulging the privilege of their whiteness. If you have ideological confrontations of that sort in such a polarized society, you're probably gonna polarize things more. Instead, what he's doing is trying to craft legislation that will be successful, that will create jobs, that will generate prosperity, that will generate greater equality for economic equality for which there is great support in American society so that he can change facts on the ground. He can change the dollar and cents experience of Americans. They begin to feel more secure. They begin to get better jobs. Their children begin to have more opportunities. More people have better health care. Uh, I think he's betting is, or he thinks his best bet is that if he can do enough of that, then he will begin to draw Republicans and Trump supporters to him, not for ideological reasons, but simply because many of these people will begin to feel, you know, my life is better two years into Biden's presidency. My life is better four years into the Biden presidency. And this is what Ronald Reagan did very effectively with the group that was called Reagan Democrats. He was always wooing Democrats. <laughs> his side. And he did not try and convince them 
that his ideas were the best, he began to ask, he said, ask yourselves, are you better off today than you were four years ago? And if you are, you should cast a vote for me. So Biden's strategy is to change facts on the ground that will allow him and the Democratic Party to have several consecutive electoral victories. There's no guarantee he can do that. His majorities, as you know, are razor slim. The country is deeply divided. But if a new political order is to be built, if his ideas and policies are going to have a chance for long-term success, that is what needs to happen. And, and I'm very impressed by the way that he distinguishes between what, what I would call progressive policies where you can appeal to majorities and progressive policies that are just energizing the left. The way that he speaks about jabs and arms and money and pockets and bill bridges and roads, that he it's all framed in I'm helping you in your everyday life. And, mm -hmm. you know, his bet on climate change is so impressive from our standpoint of view because he, he makes it a jobs proposal. This is how we create jobs for, for the American working class. And we can't do that in Europe because we don't have such a big domestic economy, any of us. We can't make that kind of transformative investment. And it seems to me that he's crafted policies that range all the way from ending the war in Afghanistan to making new trade agreements, to climate change, to new infrastructure bill in words that appeal to working class Americans. And, and it seems to me that would be my best bet on why, why he has the potential to create a new political order, because these policies can be popular and they can be popular across the political eyes. So I'm, I'm very impressed by the way he does that because, you know, when it, and it's also, I think, I think revealing to us here in Europe that his biggest problem seems to be about immigration. It seems very hard to find some kind of moral compromise between the left and his Republican opponents. And, and we have seen no pictures of Kamala Harris or Joe Biden standing at, at the border. How do you see this immigration issue for, for the Biden presidency? Right now, it's probably his toughest, his toughest issue. Um, and uh, th there is a strong element of the left in America, as in Europe as well, that wants open borders or at least open borders for people who are fleeing situations of death, persecution, uh, starvation, famine, you know, the genuine, the genuine mm -hmm. refugees of the world. Uh, and his first instinct was to bow to that pressure from the left uh, and to, in a sense, welcome Central American refugees who had been denied by Trump or incarcerated by Trump in the most horrible cage-like circumstances in these prisons throughout the American Southwest. And I would say uh, that's probably been his biggest miscalculation so far, uh, not understanding the uh, intensity of issues that surround the border, not grasping the degree to which this was Trump's first and arguably most popular policy. Uh, this is something for which I think there, as the left imagines it, is not something that's going to have bipartisan support in Congress. And this is an area where Biden has to tread carefully, because if the perception spreads that the southern border of the U.S. is out of control. That has got to hurt him politically quite severely. It's interesting in that regard that he appointed Kamala Harris to deal with this issue. <laughs> yes. And uh, you could, on the one hand, say, well, this is a very important issue. I'm going to dispatch my most trusted advisor to handle it. The more cynical interpretation is I'm not dealing with this because... <laughs> It's going to get me into too much trouble. I will let her get into trouble. And over the long term, that will bolster my chances for being reelected as an 82-year-old in 2024. In other words, you see it more cynically. Let that drag her down, yes. and I will stay out of the fray. The, uh, 
I think the uh, the immigration issue, the free movement of people, it, it's it's a one of the most vexatious issues the the planet is facing. There are all, already more refugees in the world that than there were at the end of World War II. Think about that yes. for a moment. Over the next uh, thirty to forty years, arguably a hundred million people will be driven by climate from their homes, literally. In other words, either places that where they could grow crops will turn into deserts where one can no longer sustain themselves, or the waters will rise and their land will literally disappear below their feet. So if you imagine another 100 million people on the move in the world, and I think there are very few democratic societies that can simply say, no matter how left they are and how humanitarian they are, that can simply say, open borders, everyone who needs a place can come to us. Because that is because these are not problems that can be solved uh, simply through population movement. They have to be solved politically through a system of redistribution, resettlement, sharing the wealth of the world, uh, these are very, very hard things to do, and I, I, as that is going to be one of the toughest, tough, other than the the rise in temperature itself, suffering the distress that is going to be generated by population movements is one of the toughest issues that the left is going to have to confront, and it's it's going to pit a kind of working class left exactly. wanting to um, help the workers of a particular country against the humanitarian left that insists that what binds us together is our common humanity and we cannot afford to ignore or refuse to help those people who are facing death starvation uh the most marginal kind of existence and, and i think this is the conflict that has really really been difficult for the left in europe for the last 20 or 30 years because the humanitarian left is primarily from the big cities. They primarily have, uh, they're very well educated. They're very privileged in the 21st century uh, world, world economy. Whereas those who are against open borders and want more restrictions on immigration and do not feel especially committed to the human rights and the, and the refugee promises, they're in the countryside, they're less educated. So the left comes on the wrong side of the new class divide here. If you're too progressive on, on immigration, then you lose the working class. And that's, what been, well, that's what's been driving the populist right in, in Europe for the last couple of decades. So I think for us, the package for the new left is, you can be somewhat, you can be very progressive on redistribution. People are tired of, of wealth inequality. You can be progressive on climate change if you say this will create jobs. You can be somewhat experimental with democracy, new ways of participation, new movements. But immigration, that's where you cannot be a moral maximalist. That is the weakest part for us of the, the order that was built after the Second World War. That is the part that is most profoundly challenged. You know, in Europe, we only, our democracies are stable thanks to Erdogan, thanks to Libya. You know, we pay Erdogan to keep refugees, millions of refugees in camps there. Another issue where we've been really looking forward to American leadership, I think here in Europe is ending the war on terror. And I think, whereas the Cold War provoked us to do some good things to our society, we needed to show that we were not too unequal here. We needed to show that the communists weren't right, that our societies were, all, were run by oligarchs. It seems to me that the war against terror has done nothing good to our societies. They haven't, we haven't had any progressive reforms or made any progress. And I was very, very impressed by the way Joe Biden ended the war in Afghanistan against the military establishment and picking the date 20 years after 9-11. And the, the way he responded when he was asked, was this a difficult decision? And he said, no, in fact, it wasn't. How do you see this geopolitical move by Biden? It seems to me that he wants to end the war on terror. Of course, there'll still be terrorism, but as a defining feature, and it seemed to me a big move to pull the troops out of Afghanistan against the, the military establishment. And in 
some sort of continuation of Donald Trump? Uh, yes, no, I think it's, uh, I support what Biden's decision in Afghanistan. Uh, part of it is ending the war on terror. Part of it is ending the endless wars that America finds itself engaged in, which has not had a healthy effect uh, on societies abroad, uh, nor has it had a good effect internally on American society. And some of the the violence of American society, which every week now, uh, another sh shooting, either a, a black person by a policeman or would-be white terrorists blowing up people and or, or gunning them down in supermarkets as they go about the affairs of the daily life. I think of some, I think some of that violence is about some of the external violence that the U.S. has been involved in. <laughs> and by then, by this time, the hundreds of thousands of American troops that have been engaged in these violent battles abroad under very very difficult circumstances, uh, some of that is is coming home in 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 a very literal way. So that some of the violence in which the U.S. is engaged in abroad has increased the violent character of American mm. society. And that's a very important issue uh, that America has to attend to. So as, as soldiers are brought back, this will also conceivably be a benefit from the decision that uh, he has made. Uh, it's interesting, you mentioned the continuity uh, between Biden and Trump in this respect. Um, and also Biden is going against um, Obama's decisions, his, his former commander in chief. Uh, Obama wanted to get out of Afghanistan and, and other wars, but he and Guantanamo, but felt he did not have the support to do it. So he designed different kinds of wars and different kinds of strategies, a lot of it having to do with drone warfare, which would minimize American casualties, but would not necessarily minimize the casualties on, on the other side. Uh, so it's a break from Obama in that way as well. And it also signifies uh, perhaps a deeper trend that has been going on for some time. And that is the end of what we might call Pax Americana, an American peace, the idea that, the, or the American century as Henry Luce, the editor of Life Magazine called it in the 1940s. The idea that America has the economic and military power to shape the world in its image, to keep the peace, to keep the peace in Europe uh, and other, other, other parts of the world. We see perhaps a continuity between Trump uh, and Biden in terms of seeking a lower level of engagement on the part of, on the part of America with the world uh, and reducing some of its commitments and recognizing the time has come that some of the burden of ordering the world has to be carried by other countries. Now, this is happening whether the U.S. likes it or not mm -hmm. in terms of the rise of China. And we may be at the beginning of a transition to a different kind of world order in which the U.S. is no longer the hegemon, but one of three or four powerful players in the world, something like what Europe had in the 19th century. Uh, I think the EU would be one, the United States would be a second, Japan would be a third, I don't know who the fourth would be, perhaps Russia, uh, and that a world order would be constructed out of a concert of powers rather than one dominating the rest. If we are in fact transitioning to a new kind of world order, we have to recognize that these are very perilous moments in, in the history of the world. For international relations, because suddenly, in order, an order that has been set where every country knows its place is no longer set, and people begin testing each other, and relations that have been customary no longer work, and one country overreaches, and then another country overreacts. In other words, the, the danger and the possibility of war increases. Uh, but I think the transition to a different world order is. Uh, inevitable. Uh, and I think we have to ask who can best negotiate that process. And I, I would say with conviction that Biden has a better chance as an, as an American leader of negotiating that transition than someone like Trump, because Biden has a conception that the world, in fact, needs order of some sort. And Trump doesn't really care. He's the master 
and the spreader of chaos, both domestically and internationally. One of the things that uh, Europeans and other groups, uh, nations in the world have to worry about, and I, I see this a lot in Britain too, uh, where I live and work uh, most of the time, is there's no, it's clear that because of the US American economic and military power, it, it's still gonna have a large role for itself in the world, but what kind of role will that be? And what can Biden do given the damage that Trump did during his presidency in terms of ripping up agreements, hmm. uh, ripping up treaties, um, behaving in an unpredictable way that makes foreign countries or other countries makes it much more difficult for them to trust the US or would Iran enter into a new agreement Exactly. With the United States now, knowing that it might last at most four more years, and then a Trump-like figure will come back in power again and, and tear it up once again, uh, this will be a, the lasting damage of Trump unless Biden is able to reverse the Trump effect through multiple victories at the polls. So multiple victories for Biden and the Democratic Party at the polls are not just important domestically for the domestic agenda, they are important for the American international uh, agenda so that other countries in the world begin to have some confidence that agreements that America has entered into on climate, on Iran, on nuclear nonproliferation will be honored beyond the point where the inhabitant of the White House continues to serve. And that is a very big unknown. And you can feel Europe feeling its way to more of an independent posture developing an identity for itself more separate from the United States than it has been the case historically. You can see this with regard to China, for example. And I think the European Union has to do this. They have to prepare for a world in which the behavior of the United States comes to be seen as more and more unpredictable and thus as unreliable. I think that was, I think that has been the situation in Europe for quite a while, but I've been impressed over the last couple of months at how fast Europe is readopting to the new America. You know, they made the investment deal with China in December and the Biden people were very much against it. They wanted us to go together against China. At that point, we were still in the echoes of Merkel saying Europe should be prepared self to defend itself. We should no longer rely as much on, on America. But, but now we're into the spring of 2021 and you're seeing, well, the American economy is recovering a lot faster. You have the capacity to make transformative political decisions in America that we don't have in Europe because we don't have, you know, the political institutions for the entire continent that, that you have. So I've actually been impressed at how fast Biden has managed to persuade Europeans that America is ready to lead again. You see, he made the alliance with the UK and Europe against China very, very fast. This investment deal with China will most certainly not pass in the European uh, Parliament. But where I worry, of course, is with, the cli with climate change, because we need a global leader. We need someone who can make the great powers cooperate. And Biden promises to be that leader, but the Chinese are rightly saying, well, they can elect someone else in three or four years. Who do you trust on, on this one? And they're already ahead of America when it comes to solar panels, when it comes to electric vehicles. They've used the past three or four years intelligently. So my last question here, just before time is, do you think that America can actually kind of reinvent itself in this new world order where they cannot be the hegemon of the 20th century, but still can be a kind of moral leader and kind of drive the collective effort against climate change. And I know the first battleground is at home. You have to convince us that you can do it at home. But I've been impressed to see how fast Europeans are forgetting about Trump and looking at America again, really. I mean, well, the, the moral power of America is enormous. We still, we still see your movies, listen to your podcast. We live in your cultural imaginary. Well, the ties between Europe and America uh, go very deep, both uh, on the one hand for centuries, on the other hand, 
since the uh, the end of World War II and the decision to institutionalize a wartime alliance uh, around certain principles of of world peace and international government. And so those ties are very strong. So it doesn't surprise me that Europeans are now responding <laughs> to Biden's message of hope. Uh, but there are deeper forces at work here. I do think that Europe and America economically and militarily over the next 50 years will come to be more independent of each other. That's probably a good thing, both for Europe uh, and America. As for uh, climate leadership, one of uh, the problems do begin at home for the United States. And here's where the partisanship and the polarization that you referred to earlier becomes so important. Why could Trump with a stroke of a pen just erase the Paris Climate Accords that Obama signed in 2015? Because Obama never submitted this to Congress to be ratified as a treaty. Why didn't he submit it as a treaty? Because to be ratified as a treaty, he needs the support of two thirds of the Senate. And he had no chance of getting that. So Biden can erase Trump's executive order <laughs> with an executive order of his own, which he has now done. But he too will probably be unable to turn America's participation in the Paris Climate Accords into a treaty which formally binds the United States forever to what was agreed to in Paris. He can't do that either. So until the, uh, the polarization issue in America is somewhat reduced or overcome, or until the Biden that has so impressed you succeeds in, Repub in, in uh, pressing Republicans to his will <laughs> and his ideology, I think fears of American inconstancy and world affairs are going to continue. Because as long as a Republican president can come into office and in a week erase half of what Biden has done just by the president signing executive orders, that's not a good form of democratic governance. It is in fact, this is more like a monarchy, dare I say it, than a democracy. Because this is not the will of the legislature being expressed. This is the will of the chief executive. And because the legislature has been so diminished by its polarization, more and more power has gravitated to executives. And of course, this is not simply true of the United States. This is true of a lot of places in the world where democracy is in a kind of crisis or near crisis because national legislatures are seen as being unable to see and enact the will of the people. And thus the rise of the authoritarians in so many places, not just in the US with Trump, but Le Pen in France, in Poland, Orban in Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, Putin in Russia, Modi in India, Duarte <laughs> uh, in, um, the, the Philippines, Philippines uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, they all, and they all, and you, you see these trends all over Europe too. You see the rise of the far right in Germany again. I'm sure you have it in Denmark as well yeah. uh, in, in, in some form. And these authoritarians all recognize themselves in each other. And they all share certain principles, which is that the best way forward for countries is through strong leaders, dispensing with democratic niceties and compromises and getting on with the business of protecting their people, their people being defined in racially inflected or religiously inflected ways. We all know this to be a great challenge in the world. And one reason to be hopeful about Biden is that the American people rejected by a strong majority that vision for the future of America. But for that to continue, the Democratic Party is going to have to win or put itself in position to win multiple more elections. So I feel more I would feel more comfortable in 2022 or 2024 
if you want to have me back after Biden has, after <laughs> the Democrats have kept both houses of Congress in 2022, and after he or Kamala has won in 2024, then I will be more confident about saying that America can resume some of the elements of its older role in the world. Well, thank you very much, Gary Gersel, and I will look very much forward to your book coming out next year, and we'll be happy to talk to you after the 2022 election. But at least I think we must say that we're a lot more hopeful now than we were a year ago, and a lot more hopeful now than we were two years ago. Thank you so very much for taking your time. It's been a pleasure and a privilege talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it a great deal. Thank you. Det var så min samtale med Gary Gerstel. I næste uge, der skal det handle om Europa. Er EU egentlig blevet stærkere eller svækket af coronakrisen? For et halvt år siden var vi helt op og ringe over den store grønne redningspakke, den store coronapakke og det nye grønne EU-budget, og tænkte, nu træder EU virkelig et skridt fremad i historien, laver nogle progressive og sociale fremskridt, som vi ikke havde troet var mulige. Et halvt år efter, må vi sige, at det ser ud som om USA og Kina kommer hurtigere efter corona, end EU gør. Vi er lidt i tvivl om, hvad der egentlig er gået galt med hele vaccineudrullingen, men EU står ikke længere som løsningen på corona, snarere som del af problemet. Til at gøre status over det, taler jeg med en af informations absolut yndlings-europaforskere, nemlig den bulgarske samfundsforsker Ivan Krastev, som sidder i Albanien, og fra sollyset i det albanske forår vil fortælle, hvad der er gået godt, hvad der er gået dårligt, og hvorfor vi slet, slet ikke skal dømme EU-kommissionen så hårdt, som jeg har en tilbøjelighed til. Vi høres ved i næste uge.